Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I was always kind of intrigued by Samson, so I was kind of having a a fresh look at him uh, this uh, last couple of weeks, and I was trying to think of who he's like and who he reminds me of. He kind of reminds me of Brad Marchand. You know, he's really talented, but he's just off. And I just think, well, how are we supposed to, what kind of truth are we supposed to get out of Samson's life? Like, what are we supposed to get out of this scripture? There are four chapters to look at, and so I was kind of trying to dissect it and, and uh, figure a way through. Um, we have a, um, a word in... Uh, theology called hermeneutics, and it's the, the science, if you will, of interpretation, the rules of interpretation. And there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 that kind of uh, gives uh, the New Testament view of the Old Testament, and, and it kind of illustrates, you know, why the Old Testament is important. Um, what does that say? Mitchell, you have that? 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them, Old Testament people, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we're supposed to learn something from these things. And you, uh, you know the rules of hermeneutics? Uh, it's just the rules of language. You know, we interpret the Bible literally, wherever it makes the most sense. We interpret the Bible grammatically. We use rules of language. We interpret the Bible in its historical uh, setting, and most of all, in the context in which it sits. And there's always a bit of debate about hermeneutics, and there's this kind of uh, push these days for something called a Christocentric hermeneutic for the Old Testament. Uh, in other words, does every text ultimately preach about Christ? And um, in Luke 24, 7, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he taught on the road to Emmaus, he, it says that he, you know, he taught them all the things, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so is it, you know, did he interpret every scripture about himself? Is that really true? Is, is it a Christocentric hermeneutic? There's a, a theologian or a writer named Bruce Chapel, and that's what he says. Every text in the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Uh, Walter Kaiser, who is a, a theologian that uh, we used his textbooks when I was in Bible college, um, his point was, no, you got to let the Old Testament stand on its own. You can't just, you know, bring in your New Testament uh, commentary uh, onto the Old Testament. And so I was kind of wrestling with that. And um, one of the things I sort of thought was, well, you can't help being a person alive today with uh, knowing Christ as your Savior and knowing the New Testament. You bring the New Testament to the Old every time you read it. It's just a fact. You, you, can't, you can't just isolate the Old Testament uh, completely without thinking about Christ. On the other hand, not every text is about Christ. The 300 foxes. I, I don't know if that, now maybe it is. You know, I, maybe there's something I don't know, but I, I don't think that every text is about Christ. But the question is, does, it, does a text, does a scripture point to Christ? Does it illustrate him in some way? Is it typology? In other words, is it a prefigure? Uh, of, uh, of who Christ is or what he did? Is it a, provide an analogy to him? Um, I would argue that Samson provides a lot of those things. 
when I was looking at the Gospel Project um, uh, lesson, and uh, the title of it is Humiliation of the Proud. And, it, you know, I started talking about Samson being impulsive and, and, and disobedient and ruled by pride. And the kind of conclusion was, you know, in my heart, my mind, another failure, another failure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is lately. I've been reading uh, in a study Bible, and I, I haven't hardly ever used a study Bible my whole life, but I've been reading through one and uh, just to kind of change my devotional habit. And so I was reading in Elijah a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, Elijah's kind of one of those, man, he's like the cream of the crop of the Old Testament. There's just very few people like him. God thought so much of Elijah, he took him straight to heaven without dying. Yet this commentator just kind of slamming Elijah. He should have done this. He, he should have done this. He should have done that. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. We're talking about Elijah here. Um, I just kind of wonder if that's the point of some of these things. Um, in the lesson, I believe the lesson kind of uh, covered uh, 14 to 16, but to me, Judges 13 is paramount to understanding the whole idea of Samson's life. So we're going to have a look at that. But one thing I could say about uh, whoever wrote Judges, and we're not really sure who that was, that the writer of Judges recounts Samson's life and exploits with a minimum of comment or evaluation. Then it says a couple of things that give you a good idea of his relationship with the Lord. But it's not like, you know, some editor, you know, that God uh, inspired to write this story of Samson, you know, had all this commentary about how, what a failure Samson was. And that's, that was, in, uh, I guess, uh, teachable to me, so that we would just look at it for what it is instead of imposing our judgment on it, which we just tend to do. We tend to be a very judgmental people. And I'm not just talking about Christians, but just people in general. Like, we're just always judging one another. We're just always judging leaders. We're always judging uh, people that are in authority. And maybe we just ought to, you know, hold it back a bit. So my focus uh, in preparing this sermon was I wanted to focus more on God than on Samson. And more on, on God than on Samson's failures. So my point is that, you know, how can God call and gift and direct and mightily use a person even when they're weak like everybody else. And my, I was thinking this morning as we're worshiping, you know, we're worshiping, and what are we worshiping? Now, I, I watch people sometimes when, when I'm worshiping, and that, that means I'm probably not exactly worshiping 100% of the time, but sometimes I'll just, you know, your gaze will wander over, and people are, they're just, I don't know, they're thinking of, you know, what they're going to have for lunch, or... Um, they're talking to somebody, or, but they're, or they're not singing, and I, you know, and, and sometimes we just don't worship. We, we just kind of focus on, our minds are just sort of adrift, you know, and every once in a while the music will catch us. But the whole point of worship is to do what? Focus on God. You know, uh, the band and April are up here, and they're exhorting us to focus on God, and the words point us to God, and, and really, uh, to me, the point of Scripture is the same thing as the point of of worshiping on Sunday mornings. We're supposed to focus on God. So that's what I would like to do with this passage. So we're going to look at how Samson's life pictures, in some ways, the life of Jesus. So one is his birth. And that's why chapter 13 is so important. When you read chapter 13, it just reminds you of Luke 1 and 2. It's just kind of incredible. This is, not, this is very rare 
this kind of prediction of a, a, a promise of a son. Then the next thing is this rule of life, the big question. What is to be Samson's rule of life? Then um, uh, the role of women in his life. Uh, you don't hear much about men in Samson's life, but there's all these women in his life. And, and that's sort of a, a bit of a parallel to Jesus' life as well. And then how he delivered uh, his deliverance in death. So let's have a look at uh, uh, Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's really, uh, like I said, it's a, you know, how many times does that happen in Scripture? How many times in Scripture does God show up and promise uh, something like that, especially a son? Well, the only other time it really... Uh, it's like that is, is when uh, Jesus was promised. So God shows up and per personally promises a son and a deliver, deliverer for the nation. And uh, it says that he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The NIV says he will take the lead in delivering Israel. Now, we'll kind of explain that as we go on. Um, we got a map to show you. Now, it talks about the 12 tribes, and these are all the 12 tribes and all the places that they settled, and this is the, uh, the Old Testament land of Israel. And then you have the tribe of Dan. And so uh, Samson's parents are Danites, and Dan occupied this little bit of territory here. And, um, but they're kind of an unlikely family. Like Dan is not a very prominent tribe. Um, a minor tribe. One of the things we know about Dan is they, they didn't really conquer the Amorites. Most of the other tribes conquered the people, drove them out, or isolated them in a few uh, cities that they couldn't conquer. But, but the Danites just didn't have much success at all getting rid of the Amorites. The Amorites were the Canaanites, basically. Um, and, and through the Old Testament, Dan has a lesser and lesser role. So around 1200 BC, uh, some people called the Philistines uh, settled along the Mediterranean coast. And they came from uh, maybe Kaftor or Europe, uh, someplace in southern Europe, and they were marauders and raiders. And, and so, you know, the, their name Philistine becomes associated with uh, tough guys. Uh, and that's what they did. They kind of, you know, they started pushing Dan out because Dan occupied some of that Mediterranean coast. And, and so when, you know, the Philistines and the Danites is kind of a, uh, a key thing here. So Dan was delivered... Um, to the north. And so you have a little city up here called Dan. And when you read in later Judges, they basically migrated north and, and took a city there. And that's where Dan uh, set up 
uh, shop. Um, Dan adopted, you read it after Samson, um, Michael, Micah, uh, this guy named Micah, he had an idol, and, and Dan needed an idol. They needed worship. They needed uh, something to remind them of God. And so on their way up to the north, they uh, found uh, Micah, and they took his idol. And, and then later on, Jeroboam uh, installed a second golden calf in Dan. And so Dan was always associated with idolatry for the whole rest of the Old Testament. Uh, when you read in the, uh, the New Testament, Dan doesn't even get mentioned with the 12 tribes in Revelation 7. But uh, Dan is included in the millennial inheritance in Ezekiel 48. So it's not like God is just kind of done with Dan, but uh, you know, very much set aside and very much a minor tribe. Now you go back to Genesis 49, and um, Jacob uh, gave some prophecy about each of the 12 tribes and some of their... Uh, destiny and uh, how God would use them. So when you read Genesis 49, verse 16, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So Dan will judge his people, and so you, now you have Samson, who is really the last judge in the book of Judges, and pretty much the, the last judge before the new era, or a different era when Samuel and Saul and David came along. Um, so when, when you think of uh, dates, and uh, you know, I like history, and I, dates help me sort things out. So you think of Samson, he's around 1050 B.C., and uh, 40 years later, David became king. So, you know, he's sort of... Uh, in that era, and he's, uh, that's why, you know, God said he's going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It was a generation or more, uh, and Samson just got it started. Um, and I, like I said, there was further corruption. You read, uh, things were bad in Judges. You know, uh, the epitaph of Judges is everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like today. That's what our society does. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And um, people today don't care what God thinks, and uh, by and large. And even as Christians, we can be very easily tempted to do what we want to do, what we think is right in our own eyes, and maybe set aside some of the things of God for what get in the way of us doing what we want. And I think we always need to check ourselves and make sure we're not just doing what we want, but, you know, what does God want? And so then you have this big sin uh, with Gibeah and uh, the Levite and the concubine. And the Levite had this concubine and she was unfaithful and they kind of took refuge in Gibeah. And then Gibeah was like Sodom and Gomorrah and they, they abused her and, and uh, all night. And uh, he was so fed up and frustrated that he chopped her up into 12 pieces and sent a piece to all the 12 tribes of Israel. Crazy. That's how the book of Judges ends with a civil war with Israel coming against Benjamin. And uh, it's just an absolute mess. And so Samson is, you know, coming, uh, he's sent by God in the midst of this. One other thing that you notice in the passage here in chapter 13 is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is a rare, uh, it's a rare appearance in the Old Testament. But every once in a while, the angel of the Lord shows up. When uh, Abraham, Abraham's concubine Hagar was banished to the wilderness, the angel of the Lord showed up and comforted her and said that he would look after her and her son Ishmael. Um, when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, the, you know, ready to drop the knife, 
the angel of the Lord showed up and uh, stopped him and said, you know, I've, God has provided a lamb. Um, when Moses was, you know, uh, at the burning bush, it was the angel of the Lord who showed up and spoke to him and said, you know, you knew me as Elohim, you know, the God of heaven, but I am, you know, Yahweh or Jehovah, the, the, uh, the personal God, the, the great I am. And then uh, Judges chapter 1, the angel of the Lord shows up. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, Gideon, you know, the angel of the Lord shows up and, and, and speaks to Gideon. So who is the angel of the Lord? Well, he's not just an angel. It's a messenger of, of God himself. Uh, a bodily appearance, or what theologians call a theophany, of, of the Son of God. And uh, it seems every time in Scripture when God is visible, the Son of God is involved. And that's what it says in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, but the, the one and only Son, he has, uh, he has proclaimed him or he has revealed him. So we believe that the angel of the Lord is a, an appearance of the Son of God. Now, what does he look like? Well, he was pretty awesome, but they called him a man of God. And so sometimes God shows up and he looks like a man. And, you know, when you're reading the scripture, you're kind of like, oh, he's a man. And yet, you know, when, when uh, you get further into it, you know, he, in, in the act of worship, he does uh, some really God-like things. Now, the angel of the Lord prophesies the birth. And, you know, it's interesting uh, back in this Genesis passage where it says in Genesis 1.18 regarding Dan, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Um, the word for salvation here is Yeshua. And that's the name for Jesus. So there's a, there's a real connection here. I wait, for, I wait for Jesus. I wait for your Messiah, O Lord. And that's connected with Dan. So it's just kind of interesting how you got this minor tribe and, and this kind of Samson guy who's sort of out of control. And yet God's right in the middle of it working. That's what intrigues me. Not, you know, how Samson didn't measure up, but, you know, what, what is God doing? So it's sort of like Gabriel appearing to Mary. Uh, you know, you're going to have the Messiah. And we know from Old Testament study that, you know, Israel had been waiting for a Messiah really since Genesis chapter 3, the promised son, the promised son to Abraham, the, the one whom uh, uh, Moses said, you know, God will raise up a prophet like me. Uh, from among your people. And so I wonder if the mom here, who's nameless, um, but the mother of Samson, I wonder if she thought, hey, this could be the Messiah. Right? Like, wow, God is showing up. Did you ever hear of anything like that? You know, God showing up and promising a son. And so she calls him Samson. And in Hebrew, it's Shimshon. It means the son. That's quite a name. And I think it just sort of illustrates, you know, what she's expecting. Um, so let's just go on a little farther here. Um, so she tells Manoah, and Manoah's like, wow, well, let's, I need to hear this for myself. Uh, so Manoah prayed to the Lord, verse 8, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us. And so, you know, the angel of God, the angel of the Lord came again, and uh, she went in and got Manoah, and, and he comes out, and he says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? It's kind of how he speaks about it, you know. Don't even know her name, but it's his wife. And he said, I am. And Noah said, verse 12, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? Uh, the NIB says, what is the rule that will govern his life and work? That's a really good question. Um, it, it, you know, it really shows the heart of this couple. Like, you know, they're waiting for a child, hoping for a child, and now, now that a child's being promised, they're, they're just geared into, you know, how can we raise this? You're showing up, God, and, and how can we raise this child? 
And so he uh, instructs them that, you know, she's got to be careful of what she eats. She can't drink of the vine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. And um, where does it say he'll be in that? I've got this uh, really small print Bible here, and I can hardly see it. Um, yeah, back in verse 7. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And it sort of reminds me of um, God's predictions for John the Baptist and Jesus. Like, this boy from the womb is on a mission. This boy from the womb, I've set apart. He's going to do a certain task. Um, so Nazarite, I don't know if you know what a Nazarite is. Perhaps you covered it earlier. But in number six, it talks about the vows of a Nazarite. And it was a vow of a life of separation. Maybe not necessarily a whole life, but a vow of, of a time of separation when you would uh, separate your life to the Lord. So no alcohol, no uh, wine or strong drink, uh, no haircut. I think we've got a few Nazarites in the room today. <laughs> not, not looking in any direction. Um, no contact with the dead, and really for, the, for her it was no contact with the unclean, but you know, there was no going to funerals and, and picking up anything that had death in it. And so when I think of Samson, he's not a voluntary it's a voluntary vow, but he's not a voluntary Nazarite. <laughs> he's a conscripted. He's ordained to be a Nazarite. He had absolutely no say in being a Nazarite. God said, you're going to be a Nazarite. A life chosen for him by God. And so I, I, that makes me hesitate to focus on his failures. I mean, we're all failures. And, and, and I think it's better, we ought to be, especially when it comes to your own self or your own children, like, who is God? What does God want this child to be? Who does God want me to be? What am I supposed to be? Is it is God just kind of hammering away because you're a failure? Or has God got a mission for your life? And he wants you to focus on that. He's got redemption for your failures. So then you get the parents' experience. And, um, you know, they realize... Um, Verse 17 of Judges 13, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Um, which, you know, is one of the names of the Lord. So Manoah took the young goat, the grain offering, and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went upward toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and the Manoah, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Just good old female common sense. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. It's just the same language that, you know, of Jesus in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in manna then between Zorah and Eshtal. And again, it's this, oh, we don't have the map there, but it's that area of Dan, that little slice of, of Israelite territory that was under great duress, and that's where Samson operated. I just need a little... Uh, 
See, over in the North Shore, it's been blowing out of the north uh, ever since we come back from the south. And uh, my nose had to stop running. <laughs> Excuse me. I watch uh, Kayla Mitchell on the weather, and I, I look for the temperature. I don't look for the air temperature. That doesn't mean anything. The water temperature. And the water temperature of the Northumberland Strait is 4, and that's the air temperature every day. <laughs> anyway, we love it. <clears throat> we just dress warm. So the parents' experience, you know, um, it's kind of like our experience. Like, you know, when, when Glenda told me she was pregnant, I didn't really... It wasn't like, you know, we offered a sacrifice to God because he showed up, but he, but he showed up. It was really something, you know, incredible when, when that's announced to you. Uh, whenever you find out, you know, it's like God showing up. It's just like, wow, it's totally, you know, new. And, uh, you know, we make vows for our kids. You know, we dedicate them. We make vows for them. And then, but you read in Scripture, what does God do? God chooses their frame, you know, how they'll be put together you know, bodily and, and, and personality-wise. God chooses their days, how many days they'll have, and God ordains their steps. So kind of God does most of it, doesn't he? You know, we, we have them, and then God does this. So this is the, uh, now we get into the kind of the, you know, Samson as a young man. <clears throat> so let's read a bit of chapter 14, uh, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. It's always down into Philistine territory. It's kind of the, where Gaza is, right? Modern Gaza in, uh, beside Israel. Kind of the flat land along the Mediterranean. Uh, so he's coming down from the hills and coming into the, toward the sea. And, and he sees this uh, daughter of the Philistines. And so he come up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Man, that kind of, does that rub you the wrong way? Kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, spoiled brats, you. <laughs> it's like, what's the matter with you? Uh, but his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And she's probably beautiful. That's kind of what Samson thought was most important. I, I think they were really disappointed. I'm sure they were really disappointed because they knew that that's, that's not really what he should do. And then this next verse, it just kind of blows you out of the water. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. So I'm reading commentaries, I'm reading study Bible, and I dug out three or four commentaries, and, and you know, every one of them said, he didn't do what was right. It was right in his eyes, but it wasn't right in God's eyes. And yet you have this verse sticking right out of the text saying, it was God's idea. They did not know it was from the Lord. And I thought to myself, what do we know anyway? We don't know nothing. We don't know anything. Who said that? <laughs> well, Roger, you know a few things. But we don't. We don't. What do we really know? We, like, and, and like I said about this idea how we judge. Like our whole culture 
and not just, you know, it's people, you know, accuse Christians of being judgmental, but the whole culture is absolutely like we just act like little gods, judging everything, giving our opinion and our evaluation and slamming this and, and criticizing this. And what do we know? We really don't know much at all. So you know what my conclusion is about this? Since we don't know much, since we don't know how God works like this, since you can have some, a child and the child can be like this, but you thought they were going to be like this, or their life would turn out like this, but you thought it should turn out like this, what do you really know? What, what does that teach us? Well, uh, it just kind of said to me, I just need to worship God. <laughs> He's way bigger than, than I am. He, he, you know, like I read in... Uh, Romans this week, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? How do I get to judge what he's doing? How do I get to judge uh, the great things that happen in our lives? I really don't. I really don't. So I was thinking of rule of life lessons. Uh, it, that phrase really kind of sticks me. And I heard one, and I've heard it before. And um, I was at the Feb conference in uh, Bible Hill last week, and Brad Summers was the speaker. I, I have a great love and respect for Brad. He's just a great guy, great, just loves the Lord, and um, very wise man. And he said something that I've heard him say before, but I heard it really clear. It, he said, he's talking about children. He said, don't just teach them to behave. Teach them how to receive grace and forgiveness for their failures. And I, I thought back to how I parented, and I think I was too heavy on behave. Just behave. Just keep the rules. You know, you're a pastor's kid. Act like it. <laughs> I was hard on them. <laughs> Teach them how to receive grace and forgiveness for their failures. Look, they're going to fail. They're not going to measure up. Nobody measures up we got to teach our children to receive grace and forgiveness. I know how important it is you want your kids to behave. Um, squirming all over the church, <laughs> running here and running there. And like, it, it's a little, we're a little looser today than we used to be. And thank the Lord for that. That just reminds me of that judge that uh, he kind of, you know, went missing. And he, he said, I did it because I was depressed. And, and a guy 30 years ago did the same thing, and they fired him. Today, they said, oh, good for you. You owned up. Uh, in some ways, our culture is better today. We have more compassion today than we used to have. And I think, we, uh, I think the church has moved in that way as well. But teach your children grace. Don't just teach them rules. Um, our children belong to God. He plans them. And he deals with them first and last. He has the first word. He has the last word. Sometimes our children's lives take a turn that no one can explain or prevent, just like Samson's life. What are you doing going after that Philistine girl? Now, this isn't a, you know, okay, girls, go and marry any Philistine you meet. Uh, or guys just go and marry somebody outside of the Lord. That's not what this text is teaching. But what I'm saying is sometimes you just can't explain or prevent things. Why? Because God has got something bigger going on here. 
we call it the prohorizo of God, the horizon of God. It's God who sets up the horizons of our lives. Now, I was thinking about Jesus' rule of life. You know, when I read in Luke chapter 1, and, 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 and uh, the angel said, God's going to do this, he's 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 going to do this. And, and he didn't say, Mary, do anything. Not like here where, he, you know, white mother of, of Samson, you're going to do all these things. Mary, he didn't have to do anything. God just figured she'd be faithful. And God was going to do the rest. And that's kind of what happened. So what is your family's rule of life? Do you have a rule of life that's got grace at its center, or you just got rules? These are really important things. And sometimes you, you, you know maybe you're a little too hard one way or too soft the other way, and you just keep going. And you don't make changes and corrections, and you should. Samson's rule of life you know, I'm the strong man. He probably grew up, he was quite a guy. You, you saw that painting of him. You know, and he's got muscles all over, all over his muscles. And, uh, you know, he's probably this animal, right? He's this hunk who can just kind of do anything. And, 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 you know, if anybody lived with the epitaph of judges, it was him. I can do whatever I want. Who's going to stop me? And I have a question for you, young man. What kind of man are you going to be? Because see, when you look at Samson's life and you use, look how he used women, you want to be that kind of man? Because that's the kind of man our culture is raising up. Philistines who don't care about uh, godliness and honesty and integrity and compassion and kindness. Just get what you want. Don't be that kind of man. There's a lack of godly young men in our culture. So you young men aspire to be something a little better than some guy like Samson or some other cultural hero of today. Be a real man. And, and girls, you know. It's always kind of been the way, you know. There's always some girls who are attracted to the baddest guy in the crowd, right? Uh, I remember in high school, you know, girls I liked... You know, here I am, this quiet, you know, soft-spoken guy, and they wanted these animals. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> goes both ways. <laughs> Tell you. So then the women in his life. Um, like Jesus, you know, he had a faithful mother, uh, and, you know, I think the mother obeyed the rules that, you know, the Lord said, but I think she probably overindulged him a little bit. Like, maybe he's the Messiah or whatever he is. He's somebody special because God showed up and she spoiled him, I think. Uh, who's adequate for the job? You know, you're either too much of this or not enough of this. Like, that's how it is. That's life. That's parenting. And, you know, yet the supernatural, the, the presence and power of God overshadowed Samson's life. You know, periodically, God would, the Spirit of God would just come upon him, and he would just wreak havoc. And he was made for that. God gave him the physical strength for that and, and this drive that, you know, kind of over, sometimes he overdid it or, or took him in directions that he, that he probably regretted. And I was thinking about, you know, Mary. Well, Mary couldn't mess up Jesus, <laughs> Right? God said, I'm going to do all these things. Mary, the expectation was you just be faithful. And I think that's the expectation for us. We're not going to be perfect parents. Just be faithful parents. So then we get to uh, 
this wife. And so, yeah, they have a party and um, uh, they arrange the marriage. Father goes down, going to have a party. On the way down, Samson kills a lion. Uh, well, kills a lion earlier and, and uh, later on, he go down to the wedding feast, he scoops some honey out of the carcass of the lion. Like, that's pretty... Who would do that, right? Maybe John the Baptist would do that. I don't know anybody else who would do that. But he's like one of these Elijah, John the Baptist types. He's just kind of, that's what he is, eating out of dead, uh, dead things. And so he, had this, he violated his vow as a Nazarite, and he didn't tell anybody. And then he came up with this riddle. <coughs> I guess that's what they did back in the day. And then have, you know, cell phones and video games. They had riddles. And uh, so, you know, uh, he, plow- he has this riddle, and, and the bet is 30 changes of clothes. <laughs> I don't know what he was going to do with 30 changes of clothes, but um, they didn't want to pay up. These Philistine guys, and they said, we're going to burn you, the wife, with fire if you don't find out this riddle. So she tricked him and, and um, threatened her with burning. And, and, and then here's like the kind of the, the moral of the story here. Uh, verse 18, uh, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So what's the moral of the story? Don't call your wife names. I don't know. Is that what it is? You know, it's just kind of like, I don't know. What, you know, every text speaks about Jesus. I just don't know if that text speaks about Jesus or not. Um, so, you know, he's, uh, you know, things aren't going good. This is not a good start to the marriage at all. And so, uh, verse uh, chapter 15, after uh, some days, the time of wheat harvest, he went down to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber. But her father wouldn't let, her, let him go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not your younger sister more beautiful than her? Please take her instead. And Samson didn't like that because he, he, he liked her. And then he went out. Now, this is crazy. He went out and caught 300 foxes. Who, ca- who can catch 300 foxes? Yeah, but could he tie their tails together? <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Like, I was picturing, you know, when Glenda makes uh, uh, balloon animals, and she takes the balloons and she twists them together. I didn't know that. Is that what he did with his tails? He kind of spun them together so their tails were, I don't know. And then he put a torch between the tails, and then he, you know, he lit the torches, and 300, 150 pairs of foxes go charging through the fields of the Philistines, burning down everything. Like, that's crazy. And I, I could have, you know, maybe studied more and, and dug into that, but I, I just thought, ah, just leave it like that. <laughs> this is crazy, crazy stuff. I, I dare one of you to catch one fox alive. So then, uh, uh, so they ended up burning, burning his wife and family. And... Uh, Get down to chapter uh, chapter 16. And, you know, he's done different things. He's struck down people here and killed people here. And that's kind of what part of his role as a judge was, right? He was executing justice and trying to uh, kill off the enemies of, of Israel. Chapter 16, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. And... Um, 
that gave the Philistines uh, what they hoped an occasion to, to kill him. Um, Sam, uh, Samson uh, used prostitutes. Jesus saved prostitutes. And that's the difference, right? The, 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 women, the role of women in Samson's life and the role of women in Jesus' life is really paramount. You get all those women following Jesus around, all those disciples that weren't of the 12, but were just as key in his life. They supported him. Uh, they looked after him. They fed him. They, they, they loved him. And, um, you know, the difference between Samson and Jesus is Jesus valued women for more than their looks. And see, our culture, you know, values women for their, what, what they look like. And it's very easy for men to fall into that trap and only value women for what they look like. Um, that's a real dishonor to women. Uh, women hate that, actually. They want to be valued for being people. People with hearts. And, and we need to do that, man. We need to, we need to be that kind of man. So then he ends up, uh, uh, verse 4, after this, you know, more stuff happened. You know, and he drug away the gates of the city. And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. I keep thinking of the Tom Jones song. Why, why, why Delilah? Uh, you know, uh, if ever there was a, like a name. Like you got, you know, Jezebel, that's a memorable Old Testament bad girl name. And then you got Delilah. And uh, Delilah, uh, you know, she, uh, the name means worshiper, apparently. And, and uh, uh, he loved her. And I expect, uh, you know, uh, she was probably quite a looker. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said, seduce him. And uh, see where his great strength lies. And we'll give you, we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. I don't know how much money it is, uh, but, it's, but it's a lot of money. And so she's going to seduce him for money. So she doesn't love him. He loves her. And um, he's not a very good judge of character, you know. He's not picking people that are going to look out for him. Um, so she, uh, oh, she nags him to death until he gives up his secret. And uh, finally, you know, he says, it's my hair. If my hair is cut, uh, that's it. Uh, the, the, you know, I'll lose all my strength, and uh, that'll be the end of it. So way down verse uh, 20 of chapter 16, you know, uh, she uh, shaved off his locks and uh, verse 20, uh, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And basically put him to work grinding at the mill in prison. Uh, that's an awful thing. You know, I, I don't know too many places in the scriptures where it says that, but it's sort of like Saul, you know. When, when the Lord left Saul, what a sad thing. And Saul went to great lengths to try to find out, you know, even, you know, trying to communicate with Samuel through a, uh, um, a um, medium and, you know, communicating the dead, trying to find out what God wanted. And, and Samuel said, the Lord left you. The Lord left you way back then. Remember, I told you the Lord left you and gave your kingdom to another. That's an awful thing. It's a sad result of deception and disobedience. How, how does it happen? Um, well, you know, it's kind of like you want a formula for life. Like when you're 20, what do you know anyway? You're all ro roses and fireworks and, and, and everything is just going to be a glittering road to this wonderful future. And I hope it is. But you don't get there. You don't get that road by just kind of doing what you want. Uh, 
If you value the wrong things, and you put yourself first, and you make some bad decisions, you do that over time, you will have a miserable life. You know, you, you, <laughs> when you end up, you know, three times 20, and you've lived a lot, and you've got a lot of uh, the results of some of the decisions you make, um, uh, the result of, um, you know, habits of living, it's pretty hard to change, isn't it, when you're 60? You can change when you're 20, a lot easier you can when you're 60. And a lot of times when the time you're 60 and you've maybe made some of those bad decisions, you're not going to really turn it around. It's harder to turn it around. I can't say that God can't redeem your life, but you can't undo what's been done. Yeah. Okay, let's just finish that. Role as deliverer. Um, when you get down to the end, uh, it says that he uh, judged Israel 20 years. And, and so one of the final commentaries of Samson's life was a wild, self-willed man ruled by passion, little self-control, out of control, describes his life. And the commentators, I wrote this, bemoan that if only he had been obedient, what might he have he accomplished? And I was thinking, that's not it. <laughs> There's no what might have been if he had been more obedient. He was what he was, and I don't think God gave him more. You know, the Bible says a man can have nothing unless it's given to him, right? Uh, you know, if God was going to make him the Messiah, he'd have been more like Jesus. God just made him this kind of man, and he was kind of wild. And it's not an excuse. You know, we're not, I'm not saying there's an excuse for his sin, but, you know, he was created by the potter. A larger-than-life hero whose God could use for greatness or weakness. It's possible to be used by God and be ungodly. You know that? It is. It's not an excuse, but God creates, calls, and uses and saves the weak. Here is the strong man, and God says, you're not strong at all. Without me, you're just weak. So how does his life end? He's uh, in the, the Colosseum, and they're wanting some entertainment. Bring out Samson. His hair has grown back. Right? Now they don't maybe notice. And, and uh, you know, he, he wants to get by the pillars and he wants to lean on them. And there's 3,000 people on the roof and a bunch of people inside. And Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so he grabbed a hold of the pillars and pulled them down and the whole thing came down and those he killed at his death were more than those he killed during his life. Oh, Lord God, please remember me. God did. God did remember. God didn't forget him. But Samson did need to be humiliated. He needed to be humbled to get... So he could call out to God. That's the thing I remember most about Samson, right there, that verse. Oh, Lord, please remember me. Why, why, why is that so important? Well, see, I think it's because of how God evaluates the, the life of Samson. Like, it doesn't say a whole lot here. It says you know, he, he, he stared at deliverance, and he, uh, uh, you know, he killed more at his death than he did in his life, and uh, he didn't know the Lord had left him, but you know, God had kind of used his life, and, and that's it. 
That's the end of the commentary in Samson until you get to Hebrews 11. And when I was working on the sermon, I, I went right to Hebrews 11. Is he in there? I thought he was. Is Samson in Hebrews 11? Because Hebrews 11 is the last word on all the Old Testament saints. God's estimation of his life. Let's read it. Hebrews 11, 32. And what more shall I say? He's, he's already gone through all, a lot of the Old Testament faithful saints, and they did this, and, and they were trusting God, and they're looking ahead for faith. What more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. That's Samson. That's his epitaph. That's, his, that's God's final word on the life of Samson. Yep, he was weak. Yep, he was all these things. He was a failure like all the rest of them. But the Lord God was able to redeem something out of his life. And he ends up in the Hall of Fame. It's like the Sports Hall of Fame. This is the Hall of Faith. Uh, and, you know, all the important people, Samson's right there. So I think God's plan for his life is a lot, is too complicated to just say, don't be a failure like him. The God of Samson calls and uses the weak. The focus of our scripture reading should be on God. I mean, you can, you are, you know, you fail and so do I. Um, I've had a lot of time to think this spring and um, sometimes I've got to, you know what I did <laughs> back uh, about a month ago? I got my, my old uh, uh, Neil Anderson, I am a child of God, I am saved, I am not condemned. Guys, I had to remind myself after, you know, 30 some years of being a Christian, who I am in Christ. Why? Because you can kind of sometimes get overwhelmed with what you haven't accomplished in life. How you didn't measure up. Where you failed. You can, it can wear you out. And God says that's not the last word. He's got the last word. Amen. I want to give you a last word from Hebrews chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 9. See, instead of looking at yourself, I know you've got to be honest with yourself, but instead of looking at yourself, I think God wants us to look at Jesus. We see him, Jesus Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Have you put your trust in him? Because he's the answer to all your failures and all your weakness and all the things that make you come short. He's the answer for all the things you can't understand. All the things you don't know. Do you know that you're going to have to wait? We're all going to have to wait for some of the answers. We're not going to get them in this life. But someday we're going to get them. I believe someday God's going to sit down and say, this is why this happened. This is why I did this. You didn't know it. You thought it was this but it was this because I'm doing something bigger and something greater than you can understand 
So since we can't know all these things, we just should stand in awe and worship. So let's stand for prayer. Lord, I'm glad that you have the final word. Lord, sometimes we think we have the final word. We, we sum things up or pronounce judgment or condemn others and we really don't have a clue. And I pray that we would be a more uh, humble, compassionate people toward other people. But Lord, you do have the final word. There's no mistake about that. And for those whom you come to you and you save by your grace, uh, your final word is going to be, well done, good and faithful servant. You will wash away their sins and you will clothe them with the robe of righteousness worn by Jesus Christ. But Lord, for all those who fail to come to you, who reject you, uh, they'll have to answer for their own sins. And that would just be impossible. So, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would look to you as the answer to their failures and their weakness, that you would be their strength and their God. And, Lord, may we as Christians look to you for everything. I pray, Lord, for every young person here, that every man would resolve to be the kind of man that God would approve of, that every young girl would look for a man whom God approves of, that we as parents would teach our children how to respond to their failures with grace and forgiveness, your forgiveness, and not just lay rules on them. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word, and may we focus on you all the more this week. In Jesus' name, amen.